You're listening to Precinct 444, a podcast network from the National Law Enforcement Museum. Today we're bringing you an episode from Law & Disorder, where we dive into the world of true crime stories with memorable cases that have lasting effects for law enforcement. When 21-year-old Matthew Shepard left his on-campus LGBT Alliance meeting at the University of Wyoming and stopped alone by the nearby Fireside Pub in the town of Laramie, He had no idea that he would find himself in a chain of events where he would become the victim of one of the most notorious anti-gay hate crimes in the United States, a crime that would lead to international headlines and spark heated debate over hate crime legislation in the United States. This is Law and Disorder, and today we are covering a case that has had a lasting impact on the way that we police and charge perpetrators of hate crimes in the United States. Matthew Shepard was a 21-year-old openly gay student at the University of Wyoming when he was abducted by two men, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson, who drove him to the outskirts of town, tied him to a split-rail fence, beat him severely, and left him to die. Matthew Wayne Shepard was born on December 1st, 1976, to parents Judy and Dennis Shepard in Casper, Wyoming, a town known for its connection to the oil industry. Matthew was the oldest of the Shepard family's two sons, and he attended public school in Casper until he was a junior in high school, when the family moved to Duran, Saudi Arabia, where Dennis Shepard worked as an oil safety engineer. As there were no American high schools in Saudi Arabia at the time, Matthew finished high school at the American School in Switzerland, where he had the opportunity to study German, Italian, and theater. Both at his high school in Casper and at the American School, Matthew was revered by his peers. He was described as sensitive, soft-spoken, and kind, and he was elected as a peer counselor by his fellow students. Matthew enjoyed music and fashion and had aspirations to study theater after high school. But as many of us know, the period of time immediately after high school is an incredibly confusing and tumultuous time, especially if you're grappling with questions of your sexual identity. And that was certainly the case with Matthew. Immediately after high school, Matthew briefly attended a small liberal arts school in Salisbury, North Carolina, called Catawaba College, with the intentions to pursue a career in theater. But it just didn't feel like the right fit. And after some time living in Raleigh, North Carolina, to Matthew, it felt like life would be a little less confusing if he moved home to Casper and continued his education in the familiarity and safety of the small town. It was at Casper College that he was introduced to Romaine Patterson, an outgoing lesbian and fellow student who became one of Shepard's closest friends. The pair moved to nearby Denver, Colorado, and Matthew's passion for helping others began to take on a more prominent role in his life. It would guide his decision to return to Wyoming and pursue a degree in political science and international relations to pursue a career in foreign service. In 1998, Matthew enrolled at his parents' alma mater, the University of Wyoming, to do just that. At 21 years old, he was a bit older than his peers in the freshman class, but being in the small town of Laramie, studying to pursue a career where he could make a positive difference in the world, Matthew felt safe. He was involved on campus with the university's lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender alliance, and known by his peers as polite, thoughtful, and a great conversationalist. 
and unfortunately, he hadn't been on campus very long before tragedy struck. On the evening of October 6th, Matthew Shepard went alone to the Fireside Lounge in downtown Laramie after a meeting of the campus LGBT alliance. At the Fireside Lounge, Matthew went up to the bar and ordered a bottle of imported beer, just like any other patron. After about an hour, he was approached by two men his own age, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson, a pair of high school dropouts who were working roofing jobs in town. McKinney and Henderson purchased their pitcher of beer and engaged Shepard in conversation. Shortly after midnight, the three men left the bar together. In trial, prosecutors would assert that McKinney and Henderson lured Shepard from the bar with the pretense that they, too, were gay. But truly, they intended to rob him. Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson drove Matthew out to a rural area east of Laramie, where they told him that they were, in fact, not gay and intended to rob him. And then McKinney began to punch and pistol-whip Shepard before dragging him from the vehicle to a split-rail fence nearby to continue the assault. It was determined that Matthew Shepard was struck with the butt of a Smith & Wesson pistol between 19 and 21 times, and the final blow irreparably damaged his brainstem. At the end of the assault, under Aaron McKinney's direction, Russell Henderson bound Matthew's wrists with white clothesline that they found in the truck and tied him, unconscious, to the split-rail fence before taking his wallet with his identification and his shoes. The assailants then drove back to Laramie, where they ended up in an altercation with two other men whom police suspected were committing vandalism in the neighborhood. This was a neighborhood where McKinney and Henderson mistakenly believed Shepard lived. The altercation quickly turned into a violent street fight, and police responding to a vandalism call spotted fleeing individuals, one of which was Russell Henderson. In Henderson's possession were both Matthew Shepard's credit card and ID, and upon further search of the pickup truck, police found the bloodied pistol and Matthew's shoes. Both Henderson and McKinney would be treated separately for injuries sustained in the street fight before Matthew would even be found. Matthew Shepard was tied to a split-rail fence for nearly 18 hours, more than likely mostly unconscious. Matthew was only five foot two and a hundred pounds. He was severely beaten and bloodied, his face crusted with dried blood except for two trails on his cheeks from tears. The mountain biker who found Matthew originally mistook him for a scarecrow slumped along the fence line. When he realized it was, in fact, Matthew, he ran to a nearby residence to call the authorities. Sheriff's Deputy Reggie Flutie and emergency medical technicians responded to the scene, and Matthew was transported to Powdry Valley Hospital in Fort Collins, Colorado, due to the severity of his head injuries. The police investigation continued, and ultimately McKinney and Henderson were arrested. Matthew's parents, who were still living in Saudi Arabia, were contacted, and they began a long 36-hour journey home to their son. In that relatively short time for the media, the story of the attack against Matthew had spread widely, along with reports from friends of Shepard who confirmed that the 21-year-old was a gay man and they had suspected he had fallen victim to an anti-gay hate crime. The Shepherds were baffled to see front-page headlines on newspapers at the Minneapolis-St. Paul airport during their transit, and by the time the Shepherds made it to Powder Valley Hospital, the story of Matthew's attack was subject to national news broadcast coverage. Both well-wishers and the media stood vigil outside of the hospital where Matthew lay in a coma, and even President Bill Clinton had sent his condolences and well-wishes to Matthew's parents. 
but in the early morning hours of October 12, 1998, Matthew Shepard succumbed to his injuries, surrounded by his family. The charges against Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson were quickly escalated to felony murder and kidnapping, and both legal proceedings at the courthouse and Matthew's funeral were widely covered by the media. Matthew Shepard's funeral was held at St. Mark's Episcopal Church in Casper, Wyoming, four days after his death, with over 700 mourners in attendance. There were so many mourners in attendance that many had to stand outside in the snow. But there were also protesters, most notably members of the Topeka, Kansas-based Westboro Baptist Church, led by their leader Fred Phelps, who picketed the funeral with homophobic signs. To combat their bigotry, Shepard's friend Romaine Patterson organized a group of activists, now called Angel Action, who blocked these protesters by wearing white robes and large angelic wings. The judicial proceedings in the case first moved with Russell Henderson, and in April 1999, pretrial hearings led to a plea agreement that took the death penalty off the table in exchange for serving two consecutive life sentences. A year after the attack, it was Aaron McKinney's turn in court, and while his counsel attempted to mount a, quote, gay panic defense, Judge Barton Voigt ruled it out. And eventually, the defense, prosecution, and the Shepard family came together and agreed on a similar plea bargain for McKinney, two consecutive life sentences, and an agreement not to talk to the media about the case, a provision that McKinney would regularly violate. Despite the blatantly anti-gay nature of the attack and the inflammatory anti-gay rhetoric spouted by both perpetrators during their trials, neither of Matthew Shepard's murderers were charged with a hate crime. This fact alone sparked waves of protest, calling for both state and federal legislation to protect LGBT victims of violence. In 1999, Wyoming legislators considered a state-level hate crime bill that extended to anti-gay and anti-lesbian criminal motivations, but the measure failed the state house on a 30-30 tie on two consecutive days, and even today, it has not since been seriously debated. But on October 28, 2009, President Barack Obama signed into law the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr. Hate Crimes Prevention Act. This federal legislation expanded the definition of the federal hate crime law by including crimes instigated by an individual's perceived gender or gender identity, which were not originally included in the FBI hate crime data. And it revised the collection of standards for biases motivated by sexual orientation, race, and ethnicity. The Shepard Byrd Act gives the Department of Justice the power to investigate and prosecute bias-motivated violent crimes against LGBT victims, violent crimes like the attack against Matthew Shepard. Matthew's mother, Judy Shepard, stood next to President Obama as he signed the law bearing her son's name and legacy into law. Matthew's short life and incredibly untimely death sparked a lot of conversation and inspired great strides in activism against hate in the United States. In the wake of the tragedy of Matthew's death, Matthew's parents, Dennis and Judy, started the Matthew Shepard Foundation, which was originally founded to teach parents with children who may be questioning their sexuality to love and accept them for who they are and to not throw them away. But the purpose of the foundation rapidly expanded to include advocacy efforts, most notably in the passing of the Shepard Bird Act, but also in providing hate crimes training to law enforcement officers and prosecutors. 
The Shepherd Foundation helps communities around the world to engage in conversations about hate and acceptance with resources that document not only Matt's story and legacy, but also hate crime prevention, glossaries of LGBTQ plus symbols and terminology, and helpful guides for youth coming to terms with their own sexual identities. In a way, the Matthew Shepherd Foundation brings Matthew's dream of helping others to fruition, even in his absence. The life and death of Matthew Shepard changed the way that we talk and deal with hate in America. Although his life was short, his legacy lives on through his story, the advocacy of his family and friends, and both the foundation and legislation that bear his name. If you're interested in learning more about the work of the Matthew Shepard Foundation and Matthew's legacy, feel free to visit their website at matthewshepard.org. As always, we thank you for listening to this episode of Law and Disorder, and you can find other episodes of this and other shows on the Precinct 444 network wherever you find your podcasts. A big thanks to Christopher Mitchell for producing this episode. We hope to see you again soon at the Precinct. Please subscribe to Precinct 444 on your favorite podcasting platform to stay connected and to receive our latest content as soon as it drops. We would love to hear from you. Send in your questions, comments, and feedback to precinct444 at nleomf.org. You can help us make our content even better. The National Law Enforcement Museum is located at 444 East Street Northwest in Washington, D.C., and is dedicated to telling the story of American law enforcement. We expand and enrich the relationship between law enforcement and the community through educational journeys, immersive exhibitions, and insightful programs. Find us online at lawenforcementmuseum.org and stay tuned for more podcast content from Precinct 444. Until next time, stay safe. We'll see you at the Precinct. Precinct.